Thanks for coming tonight. Certainly uh, the topic tonight, the Catholic principles of immigration is something that is hot topic, really important thing that at any point in history, but for us in a very tangible way, this comes, um, there's a lot of stuff right going on in our, our culture around this, our country right now. So very pleased to have Dr. John Minert, who has his doctorate in theology and his specialty in moral theology who teaches at the Franciscan Missionaries of Our Lady University, formerly Our Lady of the Lake College, now also nicknamed Fran Yu. He is originally um, from a state other than Louisiana, so that, and that's okay. It's, it's all right. We, we appreciate that. We're glad that you decided to come on down. And then <laughs> that's right, that's right. So... Um, yeah, he and his family have come down here, and they're actually parishioners, so you may notice them at Mass, typically at the 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, become a good friend. So welcome, Dr. John Miner. He, he, he brought some homemade moonshine uh, with him to get ready for the talk. Yeah, I'm funnier when I've drank a lot. It's always dangerous to give me a mic. I was talking to Shelly beforehand. That they record these in part to share it, but also to edit out all the stuff I'm going to say. So if you go online, there will be a blank file, and it will go on for an hour. Okay. So Father Andrew already prayed. That's what he does, which is really helpful. I was going to start with a prayer. Usually when I start with a prayer, it goes something like this. Dear Jesus, don't let me say something stupid. Amen. Amen. But I did want to talk a little bit about this at the beginning, it is a kind of contentious topic and the kind of virtues we need to engage in this and a kind of dialogue around it. And uh, oh gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Missouri is better than Louisiana. Okay, fantastic. I grew up in Missouri. So the, the number one thing we have to do, we have to think about when we engage in reflection on the Catholic teaching on immigration and things like that is we need to seek conversion, right? That's always the number one thing about which you should be thinking is how can I grow in holiness? And in a Catholic social thought context, that means how can I continually put God before, above, beyond all other loves for your country, for your family, for anything else, right? So we need to have first things first, and that's always God. And that, in other words, politics is not the highest good we seek. And that's a really important principle of conversion, and one we need to hear now more than ever, where our politics have become extremely shrill. And that's in part because we've deified them, and we think it's the most important thing we do, and it's not. Right? There are more important things than politics. And that's an important way to distort politics is by treating them as the most important. So we need conversion. And then conversion helps us to see the world rightly so that we can act rightly in it. Right? So there's a primacy to seeing the world rightly so that we can act in it. And two of the things that I think keep us from seeing the world rightly and then acting rightly in it, obviously sin and vice, which blind our eyes to the reality of the world. I mean, just to give you an example, um, 
right? Anyone who struggles with lust, for example, knows that the vice of lust is a habitual disposition to see the world wrongly, right? It's a habitual disposition to desire sex in a disordered way, yes. But it presupposes a disordered vision of the world, namely that other people are there for my sexual enjoyment, right? And so our vices always presuppose some kind of disordered vision, and that's why conversion comes first. And two of the virtues we really need to work on to have a real dialogue about immigration is one, docility, right? Docility is a virtue. That means your openness to being taught by God, by your superiors, by others, and that means we need to listen, right? We need to expect that we don't know everything, and that's hard to do, especially for Father Andrew. And the second is we struggle with, one, a lack of docility, and two, we struggle with the vice of what I'd call rash judgment. And that's where we're ready to condemn or we already have our minds made up way before we enter into the truth of a subject. And rash judgment is technically a vice against justice when I judge someone to have a fault without sufficient information. We do that, definitely, don't we? Um, but also in about, about a topic. But I want to emphasize first the docility, especially in a context where I'm talking as a Catholic to Catholics, where we need deeper conversion, and we know that, and we need to foster docility, especially to the voice of the church, right, who helps us see rightly so that we can act rightly in this way. So I wanted to start my talk by an exercise in docility, where I'm going to just read to you things the church has said about immigration, right? And it's going to take 12 minutes. I'm going to start with scripture. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers or sojourners in the land of Egypt, right? A command from God in the Old Testament. And interestingly, the after love of God, the number one command in the Old Testament is to love the stranger or the foreigner. Number one, after love of God. From the New Testament, after the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. I always love these kinds of things. You get Jesus' humor, right? Which one of these three was a neighbor to him? As if that's not abundantly clear, right? You know, you see the teacher in Jesus. And they replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. In the judgment narrative at Math, in, the, in Matthew 25, Jesus, one of the couplets there, Jesus, it says, I was a foreigner, Jesus said, or a stranger, right? The, the Greek word xenos, right? You can hear the roots of xenophobia, right? Xenos, which means someone who's foreign or strange. Um, I was a foreigner, a stranger, and you welcomed me or communed with me. Right? The verb they use for welcome there is actually the same verb Paul uses to gather at the Eucharistic Supper. Right? I was a stranger and you welcomed me. It doesn't necessarily mean the Eucharistic Supper, but it has that kind of sense of communing. And they said, Lord, when did we see you a foreigner and welcome you? And Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of my brothers, you did for me. Um, 1948. Skipped a few years. Pius XII. 
the natural law itself urges, well, there's a reason that there are so many years in between. It's because the phenomenon of migration has only been enabled by modern technology and by modern wars and by the modern economy, right? The amount of immigration between uh, prior to uh, the 20th century is almost nothing compared to what's happened afterward, given the migration that happens after world wars and also given the technology that we now have. Okay. So it, it makes sense that there would be a, li a large gap. 1948, the natural law itself urges us that ways of migration be opened. For the creator of the universe has made all good things primarily for the good of all. Since land anywhere offers the possibility of supporting a large number of people, the sovereignty of the state, though it must be respected, cannot be exaggerated to the point that access to land is, for inadequate or unjustified reasons, denied to needy and decent people from other nations. 1952, uh, pastoral document on migrants, again, Pius XII. We have condemned severally the ideas of the totalitarian and imperialistic state, as well as that of exaggerated nationalism. On the one hand, in fact, they arbitrarily restrict the natural rights of people to migrate or colonize, while on the other hand, they compel entire populations to migrate into other lands. And again, from the same document, in dealing with the family, the Supreme Pontiff, Leo XIII, affirmed that the private ownership of material goods has a great part to play in promoting the welfare of family life. It secures for the father of a family the healthy liberty he needs in order to fulfill the duties assigned to him by the creator regarding the physical, spiritual, and religious welfare of the family. It is in this that the right of families to migrate is rooted. Pachamenteris, John the 23rd, 1963. Again, every human being has the right of freedom of movement and of residence within the confines of his own state. When there are just reasons in favor of it, he must be permitted to emigrate to other countries and take up residence there. It is therefore the duty of state officials to accept such immigrants so far as the good of their own community rightly understood permits to further the aims of, the, of those who wish to become members of the new society. Gaudium et Spes, I think it's 1965. Justice and equity likewise require that the mobility which is necessary in developing economy be regulated in such a way as to keep the life of individuals and their families from becoming insecure and precarious. Pastoralis Migrantorum Cura, which is a, again a pastoral document for the care of migrants, 1969. The primary and fundamental rights of man are violated when either individual men or ethnic groups are deprived of their home or homeland. But where a state which suffers from poverty combined with great population cannot supply the use of goods to its inhabitants, or where the state places conditions which offend human dignity, people possess a right to migrate to select a new home in foreign lands and to seek conditions of life worthy to man. And again from the same document, public authorities unjustly deny the rights of human persons if they block or impede emigration or immigration, except where grave requirements of the common good objectively considered demand it. Pius, er, Paul VI, 1971, Octogesima Adveniens. It is urgently necessary for people to go beyond a narrow nationalist attitude in their regard and to give them a charter which will assure them the right to emigrate, favor their integration, facilitate the professional advancement, and give them access to decent housing where, if such is the case, their families can join them. Laborum Exercens, 1981, John Paul II. 
man has the right to leave his native land for various motives and also the right to return in order to seek better conditions of life in another country. This fact is certainly not without difficulties of various kinds. Above all, it generally constitutes a loss for the country which is left behind. But indeed, every possible effort should be made to ensure that it bring benefit to the emigrant's personal, family, and social life, both for the country to which he goes and the country which he leaves. In this area, much depends on just legislation, in particular with regard to the rights of workers. The most important thing is that the person working away from his native land, whether as a permanent emigrant or as a seasonal worker, should not be placed at a disadvantage in comparison with other workers in the society in the matter of working rights. Emigration in search of work must in no way become an opportunity for financial or social exploitation. As regards the work relationship, the same criteria should be applied to immigrant workers as to all other workers. All these circumstances should categorically give way after special qualifications have of course been taken into consideration to the fundamental value of work, which is bound up with the dignity of the human person. Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1992. The more prosperous nations are obliged, to the extent they are able, to welcome the foreigner in search of the security and means of livelihood, which he cannot find in his country of origin. Public authorities should see to it that the natural right is respected, that places a guest under the protection of those who receive him. Political authorities, for the sake of the common good, for which they are responsible, may make the exercise of the right to immigrate subject to various juridical conditions, especially with regard to the immigrant's duties toward their country of adoption. Immigrants are obliged to respect with gratitude and mature the material and spiritual heritage of the country that receives them, obey its laws, and assist in carrying civic burdens. Ergo Margrantes Caritas Christi, another pastoral document, 2004. In the foreigner, a Christian sees not simply a neighbor, but the face of Christ himself, who was born in a manger and fled into Egypt, where he was a foreigner. Welcoming the stranger is thus intrinsic to the nature of the church itself and bears witness to its fidelity to the gospel. The Compendium of the Social Doctrine. I'm going to skip that one. JP2. Okay, these last three are quotes from John Paul II, Benedict's, and Francis. Every year there's a national, uh, International Day of Migrants uh, that the church hosts that, where they give a speech. JP2. So I'll start with JP2. I'll go to Benedict and then Francis. JP2. Often solidarity does not come easily. It requires training, turning away from attitudes of closure, which in many societies have become more subtle and penetrating, to deal with this phenomenon, the church possesses vast educational and formative resources at all levels. I therefore appeal to parents and teachers to combat racism and xenophobia by inculcating positive attitudes based on Catholic social doctrine. No one should be indifferent to the conditions of multitudes of immigrants. And it should be pointed out that the criterion for determining the level that can be sustained of immigration cannot be based solely on protecting prosperity while failing to take in consideration the needs of persons who are tragically forced to ask for hospitality. Benedict XVI, the first is from Caritas at Veritate. No country can be expected to address today's problems of migration by itself. We are all witnesses to the burden of the burden of suffering, the dislocation, and the aspirations that accompany the flow of migrants. Obviously, these laborers cannot be considered as a commodity or mere workforce. They must not therefore be treated like any other factor of production. Every migrant is a human person who as such possesses fundamental inalienable rights that must be respected by everyone and in every circumstance. And another from one of his addresses. And therefore the more closely the community is united to Christ, 
the more it cares for its neighbor. Issuing judgment, scorn, and scandal, and opening itself to reciprocal acceptance. Conform to Christ, believers feel they are brothers in him, sons of the same father. This treasure of brotherhood makes them practice hospitality, which is the firstborn daughter of agape. In this manner, the Lord's promise comes true. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. If we are aware of this, how can we fail to take charge of all those, particularly refugees and displaced people, who are in conditions of difficulty or hardship? How can we fail to meet the needs of those who are de facto the weakest and most defenseless, marked by precariousness and insecurity, marginalized and often excluded by society? And Francis, there needs to be a united response to the question of migration. Let us together ask our God for the gift of conversion, the gift of tears. Let us ask him to give us open hearts like those of the Ninevites, open to his call in the suffering faces of the countless men and women, men and women. May we be signs lighting the way and announcing salvation. I know of the countless men, women, priests, religious who are accompanying migrants and defending life. They are on the front lines risking their own lives. So these are just some of the examples. There's, there's many things you could read. But there are also three kind of, I'd call them summary documents, where you can find in kind of bullet point form the church's teaching on migration. And there, uh, the Church in Human Mobility in 1978, um, Strangers No Longer, which is a document by the U.S. and Mexican bishops in conjunction, called Strangers No Longer, 2003. And then People on the Move, 2006, which was produced by the former whatever it's called, um, forgot the word, but the special, uh, the things in Rome that study particular things like the Pontifical Academy of Life, what are those called again? Yeah, particular dicastery that was dedicated to the pastoral care of migrants, which Francis has disbanded and combined with, um, the peace and justice dicastery and others into what he what's now called the the dicastery for integral development which is like a new thing but people on the move was produced by that before it was disbanded okay all of these have a lot of striking similarities and so i'm going to highlight five things from the church's teaching that are kind of a good gateway to understanding it first and this is first in all of them Persons have the right to find opportunities in their own homeland. That is number one for all of them. Two for all of them is the right to immigrate, to work and support one's family. Three in all of them is the right to place juridical conditions or restrictions or the control of one's borders. It's put differently. Right, it was called restrictions in 1978, in 2003, control of borders, and in 2006, equilibrium between state rights to protect borders and human rights. So number three is the, the responsibility of countries to protect their borders, right? Number four, which is the same in all of them, refugees and asylum seekers should be afforded protection, period. Five which is very similar in all of them too, except it's not in People on the Move, which was 2006. 
The human dignity and human rights of undocumented migrants should be respected. No exploitation. And then there's a few at the end that people on the move adds that I, I'll be talking about in different ways, but that we have the responsibility for welcome and solidarity, that migration is the mix of traditions and cultures, and that the church has a particularly important and great opportunity to play given migration. That migration isn't just some problem, but there's also a promise there, especially for Catholicism. And I'll explain why at the end. Okay, so given those five, I highlighted, I want to take you into Catholic social thought a little bit to say why one might think those or why the church teaches those five things, which are remarkably consistent, okay? And the first, again, the right not to leave one's homeland. Okay, before I get into that, I think there are three principal parts of Catholic social thought that undergird these five things, and those are the Catholic Church's teaching on the common good, the church's teaching on justice, and the church's teaching on the universal, what's called the universal destination of goods. And I think those three really undergird the church's teaching on migration. So I'll be mentioning those throughout and explaining those five principles, right? The right not to leave your homeland, the right to migrate to support your family, no exploitation, the right to control borders, and whatever the fifth one was. I thought I'd remember it but I didn't. Human dignity. Yep, there it was. Okay. <clears throat> so the first, the right not to leave your homeland. I think this teaching of the church comes from the way the church thinks about justice, which is not the way we think about justice. This is one of the areas where we need deep conversion. So the way we think about justice is it's primarily one about what I deserve, right? So what are my rights? Give me my rights, right? So it's personalist, right? It's self-centered. Second, our sense of justice is primarily negative, meaning as long as you don't touch me, I'm fine, right? So it's a primarily a, a claim against someone imposing something on me, right? So it's primarily negative. You stay away from me, I stay away from you, everything's just, right? And the third is the ten, we tend to think about justice as a product of systems and not people, that people aren't just, processes are just. And if processes are just, they'll produce a just outcome, right? So if we have this lawyer and we have this lawyer, justice happens, poof, right? The way the church thinks about justice is different. The first is that it's positive. Aquinas defines justice as the habitual disposition to give others their due, right? And so it's positive. It's about what I owe to you and you and you and everyone else. Right? So it's both positive and other-centered. If I want to embody justice, I need to be giving what I owe you. It's not what about you owe me, right? It's about what I owe you, primarily. Second, the church does not assume that there's a conflict between people's rights. So there is no conflict between rights. The way we see modern society is that we're a bunch of tiny individuals who come together and we contract with each other so we each get what we want, right? That's an, and so we're inevitably going to conflict and we're going to have to balance our opinions and stuff like that. It's not the way the church thinks about society. She sees it as an organic whole. And so rights, authentic rights, cannot conflict. And then three, she sees it justice as a virtue of individuals, not necessarily of systems, right? 
So justice is about my will being habitually disposed to give every person I meet his or her due. Does that make sense? So this is a place where the church thinks about justice so differently than we do that she makes pronouncements and we're like, what are you talking about? Like, that makes no sense. Did you just say I owe something to some random person somewhere? Can't be true, right? I haven't even contracted with them. I haven't even met them. Anyway. The church also thinks about justice is what we owe people is based on different types of law. So the church thinks you owe people things based on civil law, which is the law of a country, right? So I owe it to you. I owe taxes. I owe it to you that I'll drive on the right side of the country and things like that. I owe you all those things based on civil law. Civil law is, has to be in agreement with natural law, right? And so natural, under natural law, we owe people things too, which may or may not be codified in civil law, okay? So this is where you'll see some places when the church talks about immigration, she'll talk about owing people things or people having rights when they have absolutely no standing under civil law. And that's because, right, the unborn have no standing under civil law. Guess how much the church cares? Zero, right? So she'll feel the same about immigrants too. So there's a natural law too that governs our, what we owe people, not just a civil law, okay? And then the, the third thing, third, I probably said eight, about justice is the way the church thinks about justice is she thinks about it in three types. And that's one, the justice between individuals when they exchange something, right? So one of my sons gives the other son the other one owes him back something, right? So there's an exchange, and it's supposed to be equal, reciprocal. That's what they call commutative justice, right? Because it's about commutations, which are exchanges. The second is what she calls distributive justice. And this is where the person who has care of common projects or common goods owes it to all who have a share in it to distribute it fairly. That doesn't mean equally, but fairly, right? So I am a father. I have responsibilities and distributive justice to appropriate my time, my energy, my resources fairly to my children. Doesn't mean equally, right? I will give one the medicine, the sick one. I owe it to the sick one, not the other one, right? The time I have, I give it to the one who needs the attention, not to the other one, right? But they all have a claim on it. They all have a just claim on my time. I have to give it to them properly. Does that make sense? And then the third is legal justice or social justice, depending on where in the tradition you pop in. And that's the responsibility people who are part of a group have to the whole group. So my kids have responsibilities to our family. I have responsibilities to them to apportion the common goods, the shared goods of our family life fairly. They have responsibilities to contribute, right? They're both there. So they do chores or whatever. I don't care how old you are, you're gonna do something because this isn't just my house. This is your house too. And so we take care of it. So that's what's called social or legal justice, okay? Don't call the authorities on me. They just like put away dishes or stuff. Um, so according to this way of thinking about justice, you can see where the first principle comes from, the right not to leave one's homeland. Right? So it's the responsibility 
of countries in distributive justice to make sure people can find opportunities in their own country. That is the responsibility of civil leaders. And it is a failure on their part when people have to migrate. There is already a failure when people are forced to migrate. That's the church's first teaching, right? So we have a responsibility to create economies where everyone can partake and support themselves. That's distributive justice, right? Uh, Benedict calls this, we need economies based on gift, but that's a whole another thing. Okay, so that's the first thing. In distributive justice, you have the right to stay where you are and participate in your common project of your country. And if, you, if there's something wrong, you can't do that, right? Just like if you came to my house and one of my kids wasn't eating, right? And they're like, wow, I really want to participate here, but there's just no food. You know, as hard as I try, you'd think, something's wrong with you. You know, you'd think something was wrong with me, and you would be right. Like, some, some, I'm not doing, yeah. Okay. So number two, the right to migrate to support yourself and families, and the right of refugees and asylum seekers to protection. What undergirds this teaching is, I have no doubt, the most controversial part of Catholic social teaching for Americans, hands down. It's called the universal destination of goods. And it comes from the church's deep faith in God, who is a creator and is provident. So God creates the world, right? He didn't create the world so that just some people could have enough to survive. Do you think that's what God was doing? We really just, he really just wants these people to eat, and he wants 15,000 children every day to starve. Think that's what God's about? No. There's a... There's a faith that God creates the world for the sustenance of everyone. But also, and that's primary, that's number one. But also that God does this in and through our participation, which is where the church's teaching on private property comes from. That God doesn't just poof, give you stuff. He asks you to participate. God moves through secondary causes. Right? And in participating, we help bring ourselves and the world to perfection. Right? This is what John Paul II writes so eloquently about work. That's what we're doing when we work. We are perfecting ourselves and God's creation. He has asked us to participate in his plan. That's what work is. It's exalted. It's amazing. And the property we acquire, based on our participation in God's plan, this is where it gets controversial, must always remain ordered to the primary element of creation, and that is the sustenance of all. So that's always primary. This is why John Paul II says you have to socialize your property. By that, he does not mean socialism, right? What he means is something kind of like my garage, where I have a weight sit set in my garage, and I have socialized that property. By giving other people keys to use the gym, right? Who's, whose gym is it? It's mine. I own it. It's private property. But I'm participating in God's plan, and that good is being used for a common benefit, and it's perfecting me, too, right? That's how it's supposed to work, or something close to that. Does that make sense? Right? So he gives us stewardship over these goods, but they always have to be used for the common good. That's what John Paul II calls socializing your property. In other words, 
the church draws a distinction between ownership and use. You have a right to ownership, but you do not have the right to use your property however you want. That's what Pius XI says. You have to use it for common, the common benefit. Okay, this is, I think, the deepest conviction behind the church's teaching on migration. The deepest conviction. And probably, as I said, our most controversial. Because the church believes that God is creator, God is good, and God is provident. That means he has provided enough for everyone. And if someone is in a place where there is not enough for them to work and support their family, guess what? Those resources are somewhere else, right? There is enough. And that's where the right to migrate comes from. From that primary sense of creation, that there is enough for everyone, and that's why God created. So that we could all work to support ourselves. Right? That means it's somewhere else, or someone has too much, or something like that. Something's gone wrong. This is what happens when you move through secondary causes. 15,000 people die every day of starvation. Children. I guess God knows what he's doing, though. Okay, so the universal destination of goods. So you can see how that undergirds the right to migrate. Because that primary sense of creation, everyone has a right to what they need to support themselves by God's intention. Okay? Second, the right to migrate always includes the right to migrate as a family. Right? The church has always been pro-family. Which means she's not just going to show up on the migration scene and be like, oh, families don't matter there. Right? Migration always has to be as a unit. The church is never going to support a migration policy that permanently separates families. Never. Right? Because we have a right to dwell and be with our families. The third, no exploitation. Right? No sex slavery. No trafficking. Right? This is the least controversial for all of us. Right? The church is going to think about it as a is those kinds of things are failures and some kind of justice of people to give others their due. Primarily the people who are doing those things that are unjust, right? There's some deep need for conversion there, obviously. But as far as policies go, we need to have policies that will reduce the vulnerability of migrants to that kind of injustice. Four, the right to control your borders and place conditions on migration. And I, the second part I have appendage to that, solidarity. I think these go together, which a lot of people wouldn't think so, right? You get two people on one side, and one's like, well, we have the right to control our borders. And the other's like, well, we have to be in solidarity with migrants. They're actually coming from the same teaching, okay? I don't think there's any contradiction here, and I'll try to explain why. I think it's based on the church's teaching on what a common good is, Okay? And we often don't think about this because the way we tend to think of in our society is only of private goods. Private goods are goods that only perfect me, right? Like the pizza I eat is a private good. It perfects me. It brings me to fuller, fullerness of my body, right? That's a perfection. But it doesn't perfect you, right? I can't eat the pizza and then you eat the pizza unless we're like birds and I regurgitate it into your mouth. Um, you can edit that out later, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. 
So common goods are goods that are shared that can perfect two people at the same time. It's like a marriage. You can't have 50% of a marriage, right? When the marriage goes away, the marriage goes away. You don't just like, I take 50, you take 50. Like the marriage is gone. It is undividable. It is shareable by two people. Other examples the church has of um, common goods, like victory. Victory on the field is not had by only one of the players, right? It's shared good, right? All of the team has the victory, equally, equally. The church calls truth a common good, right? It can perfect many minds. Lots of us know what two plus two equals. Wow, right? All of us know that, and it perfects all of our minds. So it's a shared good. It's a common good. Okay, so the church thinks politics should work based on common goods, so that means the United States is a community constituted by everyone seeking a shared good or a shared goal. That means we're on the same team, first and foremost. On the same team, first and foremost. But the common good of the United States is not the highest common good. Right? The church claims that there is a common good of the world, too, in which all participate. Okay. And so these common goods get stacked, right? There's the common good of my family, of my community, of your, your state, of the church, of things like that, right? It goes higher and higher until you get to God, obviously. And so there's a higher common good than the common good of the United States, but the common good of the United States is a real common good. Okay. So if you see the world that way, you will say the things about immigration that the church says, right? That one, first and foremost, if the whole human family is part of a common good, we have to work together to reduce the reasons people are forced to migrate, right? That's number one. We're on the same team. That means if people in another country do better economically and are not forced to migrate, that is not to my detriment. Again, we have that kind of modern competitive kind of thing where it's like, ooh, they got it and now I'm suffering, right? The good of any is the good of all when it's a shared good. Now, if you're talking about pizza, no, right? That's just one person's. But the church is going to focus and highlight and draw our attention to a shared common good. So second, when there's war or famine or depressed economic states or something like that, we have solidarity. So solidarity is what the church says is born of, it's a kind of, it's love for those with whom you share the, the common good. John Paul II says, it is a firm determination to commit oneself to the common good of all and each individual because we are really responsible for all. It is always personal. Well, let me back up. So solidarity is, a, is the commitment I have to others who are on my team to help them reach the goal, our common goal, right? So the church wants to see each common good you have as a team. That means if someone falls, I pick them up and I take them with me, right? I want all of us to get there, right? That's what having a common good is about. It's always personal, right? So this is not humanism, right? The church doesn't say you should be solidarity, meaning I love humans. You're like Yvonne and the Brothers K. I, I love humans, but I hate people, right? I hate you, and I hate you, and I hate you, but I love people, right? It's not that. Solidarity is, as John Paul II says, to each individual, 
right, who is participating in that common good with me. Especially those who are doing the worst, right? So you can tell a good team when the people who are doing worst on that team are picked up by the people who are doing best on that team to get to the common goal of victory together. And this is where the church says solidarity has to especially be for the poorest, right? And this is where we get the preferential option for the poor. So the common good in each common good there's kind of levels of solidarity, right? So there's a world common good, so there's world solidarity. There's a U.S. common good and there's U.S. solidarity. There's a family common good, there's family solidarity, right? It comes with each common good. And it's in an order, right? The church rejects a kind of I'm a citizen of the world kind of thing where you don't belong to anyone or any place, right? She says you have to love everyone, right? Your common goods go all the way up to those levels of solidarity. But you live them in a certain order. You live them in a certain order. Equally, the common good requires that immigrants join the common project of a country. When the catechism says that juridical conditions can be placed on immigration, this is what she's talking about. That if you join a country, you join the common project and you participate. So you can put juridical conditions on immigration, meaning if you want to come play this game, these are the rules, right? You have to play the game. So those are juridical conditions that she says can be placed on immigration. So immigrants must seek the lower common good that they seek to join. They must seek that common good and really participate. The second part of this is that justice, as I said earlier, is actually an integral part of the common good. It's not enough for the common good, but you have to have it. It's like my relationship with my wife. Justice is important there, right? If I start unloading all of the homework onto her, homework, work at home. Anyway, it's not like we're in school together or something. If I start unloading all of that on her, that would be unjust, right? But let's say we have a perfectly great division of home labor. Does that equal a good marriage? No, not even close. <laughs> There's way more than that, right? So justice is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And so too with countries, justice and rights. Justice is necessary, but it's not sufficient. So when we think about this, so justice, you, you'll never reach the common good without justice. So in thinking about immigration, public officials owe things to citizens in distributive justice in both receiving and leaving countries. In the recipient country, right, public officials owe it to citizens to reduce and mitigate crime, drugs, danger. They owe it to citizens to keep people out who are definitely going to be harmful to the common good of a country. They owe that to citizens, right, in distributive justice. So that's an important part of the common good. This is why the church has never advocated for open borders. Why? Because it makes it completely impossible to sort out claims of who has a just claim to be here and who doesn't. You have no idea, right? That's not justice. The church recognizes that there's a difference between a refugee, right? The church's support 
for refugees and asylum seekers is pretty much unmitigated. Always and everywhere acceptance, period. No forced repatriation. So that's like the highest level. Where it would, the second highest level you might say are those who are migrating because they can't support their families, right? And those you can only say no if you literally do not have the resources. And you have to be honest with yourself. Like, do I really not have the resources or does my emergency fund just like to stay that big, right? Because that's different, that's different on a country level too. And then those who are seeking greater economic opportunity, right? Those are kind of in the second category. In one document I read, the church even says that to accept migrants who do not have a real necessity or a real claim on the common on the universal destination of goods to their own support and are leaving their country just to further their own wealth are actually should not be leaving because they're taking the resources away from a depressed place right because that first place is that people have the right to be there and if everyone who has resources and education leaves it's only going to get worse right so she's talking about accepting those who are in real need not those who are not in need. I mean, think about what gentrification did to cities. When everyone with resources left a certain part of the city, everything blows up, right? So the church doesn't, that's not justice. She doesn't want to do that on an international scale. So you have to be able to sort those things out, right? That's what justice is. You have to sort those out. And this is why when the church says you can place restrictions or conditions on who immigrates for the common good, it means that you actually have to participate, right? If you're going to be harmful to the common good, you can't come. You have to participate, right? Immigrants have to have a positive claim on this new country and participate and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that there are different claims to be able to join another team, so to speak, right? And there are stronger and weaker claims, right? All the way down to ones that should be denied, but all the way down to ones that have to be accepted. You see what I mean? Okay, so we have to be able to sort that out. That's part of the common good, right? It would never be the common good to just randomly accept everyone. That's not justice, and therefore not the common good. Five, human dignity has to be respected. Okay, we, when we talk about human dignity, we often think about it as some airy concept. So I want to give you a little bit of the background of what the church thinks about with human dignity. When she says human dignity, just think about goodness, human goodness human goodness. And so the church's claim that every human is created in the image and likeness of God means that every human has a goodness apart from any kind of secondary characteristics they have, right? Whether they're intelligent or not, they're from this country or that country, right? They are created in the image and likeness of God. And that means they have a greater goodness than all of the rest of creation. All of it one person, right? Niagara Falls, nothing. Rocky Mountains, zilch. One person, right? Image and likeness of God. Anything we do related to immigration has to take that into account, right? Which means we have to prioritize persons above things, persons above profit, persons above effectivity. The church is very serious about that. If we think about the world wrongly, 
not with humans having dignity, we will enact wrong policies. Or maybe okay policies, but for the wrong reasons. Okay, so those are those five things, and those are the church's teachings that kind of undergird them. In this last part, I just want to give us kind of a punchy end as to how do we live this on the ground? How do we live this? The church has lots of instructions for the lay faithful on how we should be acting toward migrants. Lots of instructions. It's surprising. I didn't even know it was there. I was like, oh, gosh, I'm going to give this talk on immigration. I don't even know if there's anything that I can find. And then there was so much. I had no idea. Um, but before I give those, I want to give you a little preface about moral theology. Okay, moral theology, when you have, you have two types of, you might say, commands or norms or something like that. Positive norms, like you'll love God and love your neighbor. Or like I'm supposed to love my wife or love my kids. Positive norms allow for a lot of creativity, right? Virtue enables your freedom to be creative according to the circumstances, right? The way I love Dominic is not going to be the same way I love Benedict, but I love them both. And it allows a lot of creativity and adaptability. And I can fulfill God's command to love them both, but differently, right? Lots of creativity there. Negative norms are usually absolute. This is not a way to love, period. This is not a way to be just, period. Right? For example, the church teaches that you should absolutely never kill an innocent human being. Is that a way to be just? No, because justice gives people what they're due. And are innocent human beings ever due death? No. Okay? So I don't know what you're going to do to them, but don't do that. See what I mean? So it's like a, nope. So I'm going to give you seven things we should definitely not do from the church's teaching. First, that we should separate family, families permanently. That's a no bueno in Catholic social thought, right? No justice. JP2 says the right to live as a family cannot be denied by any law. Two, that we should take advantage of vulnerable people and exploit them in working conditions, unjust wages, bribery, sex trafficking, or just use them as tools for economic development. That's also not justice, not human dignity. Three, that we should be have what the church calls exaggerated nationalism. John Paul II says this vision helps Christians, the vision where there's a common good above our national common goods, to reject all nationalistic thinking and to avoid narrow ideological categories, right? There's no higher common good. There's no solidarity outside of that. No. Four, indifference. I think indifference constitutes a sin of omission, right? It would be no solidarity. Five, that we deny authentic asylum or refugee claims or force them into repatriation when the conditions are still dangerous. Church says, nope, don't ever do that, right? That's never going to be just. It's never going to be loving. Six, racism. And here's a quote from JP2. People traveling often run up against demonstrations of individual and collective racism. That fruit of a mentality hardened into closed ways of thought, right? That won't be justice or solidarity. And then finally, seven, we as a world cannot deny people's rights to partake in the fruit of God's creation. That's not the universal destination of goods. That doesn't mean people have a right to be in this country, but if they don't have it in their accepting country, it's somewhere, right? That's the church's deep faith. That's why this has to be a coordinated effort, a worldwide effort. Okay, so what do we do? What positive kind of 
examples does the church hold out for us? One, we make migration policy which is just and seeks the common good. So that includes the good of all and the good of the whole world. It first reduces economic injustice and war so that people do not have to migrate. It's coordinated with multiple countries. As I said, the resources are kind of are somewhere. It makes policy such that the vulnerability of migrants is mitigated so they're not taken advantage of. It's policy that can sort out just and unjust claims of migration in a timely way. Not eight months, not a year, not 10 years, right? Timely. When migrants come, we welcome them in solidarity and their gifts as contributions to the common good. So that, sec that ending I mentioned is the second next thing we can do, which is solidarity. <clears throat> and here's a quote from JP2. For the Christian, acceptance of and solidarity with the stranger are not only a human duty of hospitality, but a precise demand of fidelity itself to Christ's teachings. Right? So this is serious. Church wants us to love people and be in solidarity with them. So that has to be a kind of animating principle for anything we do. For anything we do, we consider ourselves responsible for those who are on our teams, right? Especially for the weakest members. Hospitality is an expression of solidarity, right? Okay. Three, we work locally. So the church has another principle, which I haven't mentioned, called subsidiarity. And that means things should be taken care of on the most local level because they know what's going on there on the ground. That just makes sense. And that higher levels of society offer help so that lower levels can function well, right? And so we know locally in Baton Rouge how many jobs, resources, and burdens we can take, right? We have to be generous and honest with ourselves, but we know that way better than the government does, the national government, way better. And so it helps to work locally, right? We can welcome gifts of migrants and help them Im integrate. We can expend effort on immigrant people who need housing, work, education to join the common good, right? It, it has to be done person to person. That's right. Solidarity is about the person, not just about people. Four, evangelization, both of immigrants and each other's on the church's teaching. JP2 has this pithy little line I love. He says, the true pastor never forgets that migrants have need of God. We could say that of ourselves, right? Never forget that the person you meet has need of God. And you do too, right? So we can evangelize. And then five, the church's place in this, as I said before, she sees a sign and hope in migration, not just a problem to be dealt with. And that's that a unity, a greater recognition of the unity of the human race. The church is a sign and instrument of communion with God and unity among men, right? It's only in the church, only in the church that different cultures, different ethnicities find their perfection and are drawn together into what is truly one but not uniform, right? It's only in the church where things can be united but not uniform. So this is a real promise for the church when all these cultures come into dialogue with each other. It's, a, it's our moment, so to speak. It's our moment. And we have to remember that all truth and goodness belong ultimately to Christ and the church. So don't be afraid of truth, right? It is ours. It's ours. And only in the church can all be drawn into one. 
JP2 says the importance of the parish in welcoming the stranger and integrating baptized persons from different cultures and in dialoguing with believers of other religions stems from the mission of every parish community and its significance within society. This is not an optional or supplementary role for the parish community, but a duty inherent in its task as an institution. Right, so that's the fifth week thing we can do is strive for greater unity. Right? And this is our real this is our moment, this is our chance. That's why the church is always hopeful when she sees this, she calls the sign, migrants, migration a sign of the times well, because it's increased exponentially in the last hundred years. But also that in it, there's this chance for greater human unity, which can only be found in Christ. Okay, so those are the positive things to do. In closing, I want to read three kind of quotes that really sum up the church's teaching, at least in its spirit. So one from, two from JP2 and one from Francis. So JP2 says, The church hears the suffering cry of all those who are uprooted from their own land, of families forcefully separated, of those who in the rapid changes of our day are unable to find stable homes anywhere. She senses the anguish of those without rights, without any security, at the mercy of every kind of exploitation, and she supports them in her, their unhappiness. In all societies of the world, the figure of the exile, the refugee, the deportee, the clandestine, the migrant, and the street people gives the Jubilee celebration a very concrete meaning, which for believers becomes a call to change their mentality and their life in accordance with Christ's appeal, repent and believe in the gospel. And this last quote is from Francis. Lord, in this penitential liturgy, we beg forgiveness for our indifference to so many of our brothers and sisters. Father, we ask your pardon for those who are complacent and closed amid comforts that have deadened their hearts. We beg your forgiveness for those who by their decisions on the global level have created situations that lead to these tragedies. Forgive us, Lord. Ta-da. I mean, I'm, that's it. I'll take questions.